You want to be taken seriously? You need serious hair. That's Tess McGill, played by Melody Griffith in Working Girl, announcing how to get ahead in the world of corporate finance. Sounds absurd, but when it comes to cinema, a hairstyle is a swift indicator of character. And while ultimately it is the performance that makes the character memorable, throughout cinema's long and braided history, there are several hairstyles that have more than transcended the film in which they were first seen. Think of the tussled tresses Clara Bow fashioned for the World War I drama Wings, or the peekaboo finger waves Veronica Lake sported in the noir mystery This Gun for Hire, Rita Hayworth's flaming mane in Gilda, Brigitte Bardot's blonde bedhead in And God Created Woman, Audrey Hepburn's towering beehive in Breakfast at Tiffany's, Mia Farrow's pixie cut in Rosemary's Baby, Pam Greer's luscious afro in Coffee, Bo Derrick's cornrows in Ten, and Alicia Silverstone's swishy flip in Clueless. But by far the most iconic and influential hairstyle of all was Louise Brooks's bob. Made famous by G.W. Pabst's 1929 film Pandora's Box, Brooks's flapper didn't just help define the jazz age. It transcended that era and variations of it have appeared in several landmark films. Sid Charisse in Singing in the Rain, Anna Karina in Piego Le Fou, Faye Dunaway in Bonnie and Clyde, Liza Minnelli in Cabaret, Melanie Griffith in Something Wild, Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction, Natalie Portman in Leon, Audrey Tattoo in Amelie, and Chloe Grace Moretz in Kick-Ass. Not to mention Jackie Kennedy and countless pop stars from Debbie Harry, Susie Sue and Linda Ronstadt to Whitney Houston, Beyonce and Rihanna. Half of Brooks's films from the 1920s have been lost. So it is not until 1928, with Howard Hawks's A Girl in Every Port, that history now allows us the first glimpse of her pioneering hairstyle. Brooks was a support player in that silent picture, and while she did play the female lead the next year in William Wellman's Beggars for Life, she quickly took over Germany to star in Pandora's Box. And it was in that film that the new cut was put to incandescent effect. Pandora's Box was an adaptation of a controversial but very popular play written in 1904 by Frank Vedekind. Named after the Greek myth where Pandora opened a jar to unwittingly release sickness, evil and death upon the world, Vedekind's drama focused on Lulu, a young woman whose hypnotic beauty sets fire in the hearts of every man who sees her. Ultimately, however, she falls victim to none other than Jack the Ripper. You know when that shark bites with his teeth, babe, scarlet billows start to spread, fancy gloves, oh, where's Maggie, so there's never Never a trace of red. However ambivalent Vedekin's depiction of Lulu may have been, there is something acutely ironic about how Pabst conveyed her charisma. The cinematographer on Pandora's box was Gunter Krampf, who, with the exception of Pabst's picture, is most remembered today for having lit F.W. Murnau's horror classic Nosferatu. 
A more incongruous pair is hard to imagine. However, Kramp's work on both films is linked by one thing. The need to conjure up an unearthly air. Whether Count Orlok or Lulu, both films needed to suggest their lead characters had a presence beyond the physical. They needed an aura. And while Murnau's aim was for unsettling realism, for Papst's film, Krampf had to deliver a fatal romanticism. Under Krampf's lighting, Brooks's black bob glistened as a lacquer helmet, while her pale skin shimmered like a silver spoon. Papst felt that combination was essential in conveying the paradox behind Lulu's persona. Bright, dark, tangible, yet ephemeral. Pabst had a rare eye for talent. Three years earlier, he had directed a then-unknown Greta Garbo in The Joyless Street. And as he and fellow writer Ladislaw Vajda were finalising the Pandora script, Pabst scoured across Germany and was settling, reluctantly, on another relative unknown named Marlene Dietrich. But once he saw the 20-year-old Brooks, he knew he had found Lulu. Perhaps not coincidentally, the very next year, Dietrich would star in Joseph von Sternberg's The Blue Angel, a similar story where a man finds his downfall at the feet of an alluring woman. But watch those films back to back, and it is Pandora's box that not only has a lot more to say, it says it more effectively. Here is Brooks in 1984 telling documentarians Richard Leacock and Susan Vol about how she and Pabst collaborated to realise the film version of Lulu. The funny thing about Lulu was this, he knew instinctively that I was Lulu. That's why I was never an actress. Uh, it's of the essence. To be a great actress, you must know what you're doing. When I acted, I hadn't the slightest idea of what I was doing. I was simply playing myself, which is the hardest thing in the world to do. Contrary to common perception, the Jazz Age wasn't exclusive to late-night speakeasies and hot afternoons in hotel bedrooms in 1920s New York. No, other great cities such as Paris, Shanghai and Berlin were also sipping yellow cocktails and swaying to the brassy airs. Only in Berlin, the light was decidedly darker. Germany had been defeated in World War I and from its ashes grew the liberal enclave of the Weimar Republic. But that did not mean everyone was happy to listen to syncopated rhythms, gulp champagne from ladies' slippers, and for those same ladies to then dance barefoot on top of tables. Lurking out in the alleyways, Hitler's brown shirts regarded this new culture as the result and cause of Germany's defeat. The Nazis despised the liberalism, the hedonism and the modernism, and their numbers were increasing. So, while the Jazz Age in New York fed off prohibition, Berlin's nightclubs expressed another type of defiance. As the 1920s turned the corner into the 30s, and as the Nazi party's membership expanded, the clubs appeared increasingly to be isolated outposts taking a stand against an encroaching tyranny. Happy to see you, 
held up as a masterpiece today when Pandora's box premiered in Berlin back on January the 30th, 1929. It was greeted with widespread derision. A reason for this might have been the changes made in adapting Wedekind's play. Pandora's box was the second of a two-part drama, the first of which, Earth Spirit, Wedekind initially drafted back in the 1890s. Controversial when it first premiered in Nuremberg in 1904, the intervening quarter century had nonetheless seen Lulu become one of German theatre's most iconic roles. Across both plays, Lulu is not only the dominant character, but a singularly nasty personality, intent on destroying everyone around her. For Wedekind, Lulu represented a culture he felt was about to reach its apex, and would soon thereafter be eroded by an already apparent lecherous materialism. But while audiences were offended in 1904, they should not have been surprised. There was published in Germany at the time a popular satirical magazine, Simplicissimus, and 80 years earlier, Wedekind had written a piece for it lampooning Kaiser Wilhelm. The Kaiser took offence, the magazine was censored, and Wedekind imprisoned for Les Majesté, the crime of demeaning the monarch's dignity. However, for all his apparent radicalism, Wedekind appears to have had a reactionary streak. His wife, Tilly Nuves, was some 20 years his junior, and despite their having two daughters, their relationship was strained, due in large part, to Tilly's sexual appetite. Feeling unable to satisfy her desire, Wedekind developed a jealousy that fueled his suspicion that Tilly was unfaithful. That suspicion fueled the creation of Lulu. That Lulu is sexually liberated, enjoys the patronage of several wealthy men, but ultimately loses her way and is murdered at the hands of Jack the Ripper. Well, it doesn't take Sigmund Freud to figure out what Vatican really thought of sexually liberated women. However Wedekind regarded his creation, German audiences were hostile to the film, and as for foreign markets, the censors there were outraged by what they saw as not just licentious content, but also a lack of moral condemnation of Lulu's sexuality. You see, as well as conquering men, Lulu also attracted women. Pandora's box was thus distributed in heavily edited and bodlerized versions and consequently it failed at the box office and fell out of circulation. As for Brooks, her fate was barely any different. Paramount Pictures put out a story saying that they had let her go because she had not been able to make the adjustment from silent to sound pictures, that her voice was bad, and, worst of all, that she had been difficult on several productions. When her next film with Pabst, The Diary of a Lost Girl, also failed, Brooks found the other studios had all but closed their doors to her, telling her that if she wanted to work, that she would have to go to the back of the queue and start auditioning for bit parts. Her very last film was Overland Stage Riders in 1938, a 55-minute B-Western, where she may have earned the female lead, but she was billed way down in fifth 
a long way beneath the male lead, John Wayne. I think it's time you and I had some serious conversation. That's no lie. Well, you said that like you had the weight of the world on your shoulder. Maybe I have. What I say next may sound like heresy, but while Brooks undoubtedly had an electrifying screen presence, while she had a persona the likes of which cinema had never seen before, while in that one film she seemed to typify an entire age, she was not, in the final analysis, a truly great actress. A star without question, one of the most luminous, absolutely. A talent capable of swiftly and clearly communicating an array of emotions, undoubtedly. Having once been a ballet dancer, Brooks also moved with a dynamic grace. But if you watch closely and study the editing in Pandora's box, what you won't see within the one shot is the transition from one emotion to another. In that respect, Brooks's fluorescent passions needed to be measured out, cut into single shots and then assembled together to create an emotional arc. And the person responsible for that was the uncredited editor on Pandora's box, Josef Fleissler. So, if Pandora's box faded without trace and Brooks's career along with it, how are we celebrating both today? Their reputations began their revivals in September 1955 when James Card, the film preservationist and curator of the George Eastman House, found that Brooks was living as a recluse in New York's East Side. Here is Card speaking to the BBC in 1986. She was in the most deplorable physical condition from having just lived on almost nothing but alcohol for years and years and years. She was enormously bloated. Her hair was unkempt, hanging around her face. She wore those enormous frog-like space shoes and a rusty old overcoat that she called her, her uniform. F. Scott Fitzgerald famously quipped, there are no second acts in American lives. Louise Brooks had a second act. Card's entrance into her life saw her films screened in film societies across America and Europe. She was invited to pen articles for film magazines recounting her adventures, and eventually she published her memoirs Lulu in Hollywood. It provided a poetic finale to Brooks's life. The Hollywood moguls may have claimed she did not have a good speaking voice. But Brooks discovered she could write, and so she got to tell her own story in her own words. The passages which focused on the making of Pandora's box were written with such fluidity they might as well have been called Remembrance of Things Past. Here is the Oscar-winning actress Linda Hunt reading from Brooks's memoir. At the Eden Hotel, where I stayed in Berlin, the cafe bar was lined with the higher-priced trollops. The economy girls walked the streets outside, on the corner stood the girls in boots advertising flagellation. Actors' agents pimped for the ladies in luxury apartments in the Bavarian Quarter. Racetrack touts at the Hopa Garden arranged orgies for groups of sportsmen. The nightclub El Dorado displayed an enticing line of homosexuals dressed as women. At the Mali, there was a choice of feminine or collar and tie lesbians. Collective lust roared unashamed at the theater. In the review, Chocolate Kiddies, when Josephine Baker appeared naked except for a girdle of bananas, it was precisely as described by Vedekind. 
They rage there as in a menagerie when the meat appears at the cage. Elsewhere in her memoirs, Brooks lifted the lid on how Hollywood's rich and powerful men mistreated vulnerable and aspirational women. That it took the world so long to believe her is rather disheartening. So, let's just hope, enough has been learned that there isn't a modern version of Brooks out there somewhere right now, whose gifts are being snuffed out because of some intolerant or sadistic mind. Power was the most important thing. The producers fought for power. Money was a means for power and to sleep with beautiful women. And they didn't want anything that challenged their power. 